Hello and welcome to The Secret Knowledge. My name is Shane. I'm Allison. And today we're talking about the 2020 documentary, The Phenomenon, by James Fox, as part of an ongoing exploration of media and rhetoric in the field of ufology. Let's start with our first impressions. Yeah, so it's it's hard for me to think about the phenomenon outside of the context from the, the last project that we did on Greer's documentaries. And, and the reason that is, is because I saw the phenomenon, I think right around when it first came out, and it had been a long time since I'd seen it since then. So I wondered if I was going to have the same experience re-watching the phenomenon that I did re-watching Unacknowledged, which is to say that I was going to see a lot of inconsistencies and problems that I didn't notice on the first re-watching. But I was actually surprised at at how well at least parts of it held up or or at least how well it held up in terms of letting me make my own decisions about things and contextualizing certain issues. What did you think? So when I first saw this movie, it was actually you who showed it to me. And I remember being really blown away. I was actually so immersed that when I thought of the movie in hindsight, I didn't even remember it having a narrator. I, I thought the phenomenon didn't even have a documentary narrator because it does such a good job of contextualization to where you're told about an event, you get a few interviews from people who either experienced it or who know about it, and then you sort of just move to the next thing. And because of that pace, I just remember being totally gripped from from beginning to end. So when I rewatched the movie, I was a little worried, like, is it gonna hold up? I had learned that some people in ufology ended up not being quite as trustworthy as I hoped. We read some debunking stuff, and so I kind of thought, Am I going to watch this movie again, and is it going to be a huge dud? Um, And I had actually watched it before this rewatch, I think three or four times, because you showed it to my roommate and I. Yes. My roommate and I watched it again. My roommate watched it with his mom, (laughs) and I watched it, I think, by myself a third time, so... I've now seen the movie at least five or six times, and at least in my opinion, I I do think it holds up. I think it's well-made. I think it's fun to watch. I'm not saying there aren't perhaps some moments um, that are a little weaker, which we can get into, Um, but overall, I think it's a fun movie, and it's a great introduction to probably specifically more American ufology. There are some other countries' stories. Australia, Zimbabwe. Australia, Zimbabwe, but... UK, I think. A big push of the movie, I think, would be like American ufology. Yeah. Uh, Upon rewatching it, I I didn't really uh, internalize the first time that this does seem like a very military specific perspective. Not that we don't get stories that are non-military, but the central focus does seem to be um, using military examples, pilots etc as the central source of support i didn't notice that either and it's actually cool you point that out and i think the way that the movie makes it feel like it's not all military is you'll often get little intercut stories of like for example the family that lived on the farm and took a, a few pictures of a ufo yes the Mac- mcmillan yes. sightings the 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 woman with the rabbits the woman with the rabbits <laughs> who says it went uh so it, it'll often be i would say that the structure of the movie tends to be 
you'll get a story like from a pilot. Then you maybe get a more civilian-esque story and then you'll hop back into a more military-based uh, story. But what are you thinking? Should we jump into uh, what would be the first section of this of this film? Yeah, I, I think this is a good place to, to pivot, especially since we're talking about contextualization of issues. So, so how would you define the first section? I would define the first section, and I would say, in my opinion, the movie has three main parts. I think the first main section would be about the first 30 to 40 minutes, uh, which involves testimony mostly from American pilots, um, and some civilians seeing UFOs from about the 40s to the 60s and 70s. Uh, to me, that is that is part one of the phenomenon. I would say part two of the movie revolves around UFO sightings at nuclear bases, testing sites, military weapons facilities, um, and a lot of testimony surrounding that. Uh, and then part three of the movie, I would say, is a little harder to classify. I, I would classify it as more of an experiencer or one-to-one or, or -one human to alien contact. Moving from, look, we've established there are some pretty compelling radar examples of seeing things in the sky moving to oh we have some people that that say that they've seen them on the ground so we move from um i, I can't remember what all of the the ce1 the ce2 the ce3 i actually know them all oh should i say please them? flaunt your knowledge so a ce1 is an aerial sighting within 500 feet a ce2 close encounter of the second kind is a sighting that involves a kind of physical evidence, which can be track marks on the ground. Ground traces. So this would be Lonnie Zamora, ah. who's covered in the movie, would be a close encounter of the second kind. Though his would also then be a close encounter of the third kind, because he saw extraterrestrials. That's what a close encounter of the third kind is. A close encounter of the fourth kind involves an abduction. And for the Greer heads out there, a close encounter of the fifth kind involves uh, telepathic telepathic communications a vectoring, vectoring them in, in. <laughs> of ufos so those to me are the three main parts of the documentary i would say that part one is my favorite uh mostly because of the pacing and the way that everything sort of comes together uh so do you want to discuss uh part one yeah so so let's jump into to part one it begins with christopher mellon uh talking about the gimbal video and the fact that this the the U ufo issue really came into the public sphere in a way that i hadn't previously with the the, the release of those videos in 2017 yes i'd have to double check that date but i believe mm -hmm. it was 2017 um it starts by introducing our narrator peter coyote uh, and then we really just go example by example, case by case, um, on some compelling visual encounters with UFOs. And we, we spoke about our first impressions of this documentary and whether or not it, it would hold up. And I think this is a real advantage. If the purpose of this documentary is to posit that there are unidentified flying objects out there and they do deserve our attention and perhaps perhaps even our public funds. Whether or not this video clearly establishes that aliens are here and visiting, that I think doesn't matter when it does achieve the goal
goal of saying, hey, we would like to present to you the fact that this is happening and here's the support for it. I think it's an advantage that it goes by and large chronologically and it focuses on story by story. Here's what happened. Here are the people surrounding the event. It often doesn't just stick to one story per happening, but it will give, here's something that happened a few days before, here's something that happened in the same region. And I think that's a major advantage to the documentary. And in looking back over it, that is why I don't feel like I was bamboozled by my first watching of the phenomenon. I totally agree. Actually, one of my favorite examples of that in part one is that there's just, I think he's just a normal pilot, not even a military pilot. He was more of a commercial uh, pilot who claims who have seen a UFO. There's another pilot who makes fun of him. And then the next sighting in the documentary is the pilot who made fun of him also having seen a UFO. Right. And I think why I like part one of this documentary so much, kind of thinking of the rhetoric in the field of UFOlogy or like the way that we get this information from outside sources, I like how there's sort of two narratives going on in part one. One is, as you as you said, this establishing credibility of whether or not this is aliens, whether or not what the heck this is, something's going on in the sky. The other narrative, though, it captures really well is the American hysteria surrounding this, this time. It often, I think this is my favorite part, it often shows original newspaper clippings. It talks about this sort of bubbling over of tension in uh, Washington, D.C., uh, we get into Project Blue Book with Dr. J. Allen Hynek. I love how there's really two storylines going on. One is the unfolding credibility of the phenomenon, and the other is the culture's response to what's going on. Right. It, it doesn't make me decide from the outset whether or not I have to believe this is aliens or I have to believe that this is some sort of larger psyop. It's just here are the historical events and the happenings leading up until the 2017 gimbal video. And and that's that's a major advantage contrasted to the last series we did on Greer's documentaries, which one, um, often are not chronological, which that's not in and of itself a problem, but when you're not actually providing source support from multiple sources, you're just saying, this happened to me, this happened to me, I heard this about this person, this person told me that. That's just not convincing mm. from a rhetorical standpoint. If you don't already enter into those documentaries saying, I believe Greer, I believe he's correct, then you're never ultimately going to be oriented within the material. This documentary at least makes an effort to keep you oriented to where you are, what is happening in time all the way through. No, and I, I think that question of how you're oriented is really important with this because it does, it'll say, this was the first time UFOs were ever researched by the government. And then it'll say, this was the next time. And then they interview that guy. So this movie does such a good job of walking you through the history. Uh, actually, something that's always stood out to me, and I have to wonder if this is intentional. Uh, the first man who speaks in this movie, other than uh, Mellon, uh, is an old retired uh, Air Force pilot. And every time we've watched this movie together, you've pointed out how he is specifically... William Coleman. He's very convincing to you. And, you know, part of the reason he's so convincing is because he just seems like a normal old guy. His testimony is very straightforward. There's very little embellishing. He just says what he saw. And you have always pointed out 
how convincing he is of an introduction uh, to this documentary. So, Which I want to kind of contextualize my responding to that person. It's not necessarily that I'm willing to, to place my bet that he's telling the truth. It's just... It's baffling to me that my perception of truth is so much based on how I'm seeing something presenting to me. And when I see a kindly, zesty old man saying, there were two big swirls, a true flying saucer, when he looks old and honest, it's not impossible for me to believe that he's lying. It's just shocking to me how convinced I can be simply by a testimonial. And I'm not saying that's good or bad, but I think that's something we should all pay attention to when we're thinking about testimonials and how credible they are as evidence. That also goes into another thing I like about part one, when you actually see old footage from press conferences at, at, at the time, whether it was the 50s or, or the 60s. And I'm not saying that they gave... Uh, very clear answers about UFOs back then, but it's kind of refreshing compared to nowadays where I feel like if I go on Twitter and I click a link about like a Pentagon release, I feel like it's just so much kind of fake government language that I'm not even really sure what's being said. And it's like, well, we're taking the UAP issue more seriously than ever. And it's like, but are you, you know, so there's something refreshing to me seeing these people back in the fifties just on television interact with the public directly and like how they spoke and 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 what they said and i believe it was and you can correct me if if you remember differently i think it was j allen hynek who said the one of the biggest regrets of his career was saying the swamp gas thing yes it was hynek he 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 regrets having said that in in that press conference but he also said he had already pushed the boundaries a little too much uh versus what the military wanted him to be saying in 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 the first place so I think all that stuff is super compelling just kind of on its own, not not even p- putting aside the question of aliens for a second. I just love how the documentary presents it, and I just think it's so fun to watch. Like I said, my first impression was just I was gripped, and I remember just thinking right in front of me, aliens were being proven. You know, I was like, ah, oh, this is like so, so good. So I love part one of the documentary. Um, are there any other thoughts you had about, about part one? Well, I would just say that, that that kind of checks off the the bare minimum of how much attention I will give a particular piece of media. And the bare minimum is, am I able to track and follow the information as it is presented to me? That doesn't mean the information is correct, but if you are dealing with a piece of media and you can tell that you're not always oriented by the speaker where you're at, sorry, that information already has to be put on on the back burner to a certain degree because they're not handling it in a way that is trustworthy. That doesn't mean they're doing so in a malicious way, but that means I can't give the same level of attention to it that I would give something that is going to make sure that I'm always certain of where I'm standing. Who is speaking? When is this information coming from? What is the surrounding evidence? Does the phenomenon do that? It at least is making a significant effort toward 
record that. And the, the specific circumstance that I'll kind of use as an example of that in the documentary is when they're talking about the, the Westall School uh, sighting in, in Australia, which happens about 24 minutes into the documentary. And I think it kind of comes as a preview to where the documentary ends, which is in the Zimbabwe School. So you kind of have this little book-ended experiencer portion at the beginning of the documentary and at the end of the documentary. So in Australia, 50 years later, children believe that they saw UFOs converge on their school. And it shows a, it's not only the children's testimonial and the fact that this was in the news at the time, but they also have an interview uh, with a, I believe it was a science teacher who chooses not to appear on screen, which does that potentially make his testimonial less credible? Perhaps. Uh, He says that men in black showed up uh, to his doorstep and essentially said that if he didn't forget about everything that he saw, um, they were going to turn in a report that he was a, a big uh lush mm-hmm. and chalk his sighting of of what he saw up to the drinking but then it also further contextualizes the the Westall sightings by saying um 4 days before there was an engineer they don't give the name of the engineer, which, which it, does that make that less credible? Yes. But once again, it's providing more source support to this particular happening that said that he was taking uh, pictures in a nearby town called Baldwin. And the picture does not look particularly good. But then he says the officers showed up at his house with a book of UFO pictures that they flipped through and he identified the UFO that he saw among those pictures. Now, my question question about that event is why did the men in black that showed up at the school teacher say that they were going to call him a drunk and the men in black that showed up at the engineer's house went through some some UFO pictures. I'm not saying that the story itself necessarily holds up but when I look to a piece of media and am trying to decide how much I can potentially trust how things are being presented to me I like that we have here are the children here is the science teacher. Here's a supporting story from a nearby town. By the by, the engineer says that the UFO he saw looked like a flying mushroom, which <laughs> that's one of the reasons why I like researching this stuff. I'm all about the flying mushrooms. And, you know, I had actually forgotten that his sighting was mentioned in conjunction to the sighting of the school children. But that is just a great example of what this documentary does. It seems like when it can, it does like in a way and this isn't quite the literal definition of this word but it will cross reference yes. something to, to the to the best of its ability and i'm going to fact check myself for a second here in that i'm looking back at my notes and i'm seeing that the science teacher says men in black showed up at his house but the the engineer that saw things in baldwin said air force officers showed up at his doorstep so that might be a reason of why the reception at the was a little different, was a little different. so mm-hmm. just for the record that means it wasn't necessarily the same people that showed up and spoke to each of those individuals. Well, this sort of reminds me, actually, of, in my opinion, the most compelling piece of evidence in the entire documentary, which actually is in part two. So would you like to jump yeah. into part two? Let's, let's, jump, let's jump into part two. 
I think that's where I'm at with ufology in general, which is everything is so muddled. The history runs decades and decades back for people like ourselves, which have a little bit of knowledge about the phenomenon or however you want to label it, but don't know all of the nitty gritty. We don't know all of the players and how they interact with each other. That means if I'm not at a point that I can actually make a decision about the the individual events, in the very least, I want those responsible for presenting the information to me to be holding themselves to the highest possible standard. So now we're going to talk about part two of the phenomenon, which largely centers around UFO sightings at nuclear test sites, uh, military bases, and things like that. Uh, so I mentioned earlier that my favorite piece of evidence comes from this part of the documentary. We get into a series of, of sightings and experiences where UFOs are on or near right. nu- nuclear sites. They're intruding. They mm-hmm. are intruding on onto these sites. And there's sort of a number of things that happen. In, 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 in one of the stories, a, a red beam-like laser is coming out of a UFO and sort of scanning. Someone posits data scanning for what might be inside of a certain silo or, um, you know, like weapon storage facility. In other instances, it's much more frightening. Uh, Nuclear bombs themselves are both turned on and off into launch ready mode, uh, which totally freaks people out. Uh, But my favorite part is that we actually have a piece of audio um, from one of these sightings, which involves a few men out in the woods near near their base. And again, this is to me my my favorite part of the movie. You actually get their audio from what they were saying and you hear them say, oh man, this what part, is this yeah, thing? Like, yeah, this one gets my kookies spookied. And, and you know, we don't have like video or anything, but just to actually have that audio and to not have someone saying, 30 years after the fact, I saw this, I saw this, I saw this. Re- revisiting this after a Stephen Greer series was like so compelling and kind of freaky to me to just have that actual audio still preserved to this day. Right, because if in instances in which Greer is making reference to sightings that people have been on the ground seeing weird stuff, we we never get anything resembling tangible to, to provide it as source support. However, there is something about part two, which is where I kind of wonder about the documentary's angle. So this is where I think the documentary, except for a, a part in, in the third part, I think it gets the closest to preaching to us. Uh, This is what the documentary and the testimonies of the soldiers posit, is that aliens are seeing how nuclear ready we are and are exhibiting abilities to turn those missiles off if, if need be. Something that's kind of implied through these testimonies is like the aliens are keeping us from destroying ourselves. Right. That's that's one of the parts where the phenomenon does reach into a thesis a little bit. And it says, hey, you know, because of World War II, because of the detonation of two atomic bombs that's what got aliens to take notice of us they are able to turn our missiles on and off 
we couldn't actually take this too far because they would be there to sort of be like the guardian angel, you know? And I'm not sure how I feel about that. I know for a time you found some comfort in that idea. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I not not that I necessarily believe that idea uh, because I just don't think, I, I think this is kind of what you're saying about that section is it's making a very clear statement about what the potential motivations of aliens are, which one relies on the assumption that this is aliens and they are aliens, which isn't necessarily something that part one declares. Part one is sort of allowing us to just grapple with the idea that there's something unknown here and happening that we can't explain. Could it be the government? Could it be aliens? Could it be this? Could it be that? Sure. Um, but, But here you're saying that it's maybe extending its reach a little bit too far in that it's actually saying what the motivations are you know i I just think that compared to part one the viewer is asked to believe a lot of things in part two and it's kind of strange to me that that even has to be included in part two of this documentary because again i find this to be maybe the most gripping section in terms of like oh my god like aliens are messing with nukes like that's crazy and then you get that audio of the soldiers out in the forest and you're like oh my god like they saw a ufo and for the record, in that um, specific instance, which happened in South Dakota in 1996, um, it was this guy named Galen King that sa- sa- said he saw that beam of reddish light over the base. They posited that it was this scanning thing that was happening. It's actually two nights later when that audio recording happened. So this is just another example of how the documentary is capable of presenting a specific story, but the story doesn't only hinge on one person or one thing. It's saying, this happened. Two days later, this happened. Then we have um, not only them seeing that in that strange red glowing light going through the forest, but we also have that corroborated by the fact that they had difficulty uh, communicating with the tower uh, operators who also saw a strange object in the sky. Now, could this all be fake? Could it all be lies? Could this just be more information that this is actually a PSYOP? Sure, whatever. That's not, you know, we're not here to argue whether or not it's aliens or PSYOP, but it is a good presentation of the material itself. Yeah, and and that's why I think this most recent rewatch had me kind of raise my eyebrow about that because for all intents and purposes, the documentary is still firing on all cylinders as far as what you just said, this sort of cross-referencing, this sort of building of a case, this sort of... Here's this event. Here's two days later. Here's the audio. Here's the crisscross like of all the witnesses. And yet I also feel like this is where the documentary starts to ask more and more of me as far as what this means. Um, And I kind of wonder from James Fox perspective, are you walking away from part one thinking, all right, they believe in aliens now let's up the ante. Yeah. Yeah. And and Mm -hmm. if, if that is the intent of James Fox, that is a little, disappointing to me because i don't even think this movie needs that Mm -hmm. that's that's i think my main point i'm not saying part two is ruining this movie for me i'm not saying that at all i'm just saying this is the first moment where i'm kind of realizing it's asking more of me right that it's that it's leading you to a a particular destination that this is not you know everything has its biases but but its biases is clear like I, i think it's clear that the documentary is wanting us to believe that it is aliens not that they're 
is just something happening as that first part suggests. But what I will say about this documentary, even though it does have its biases and it does seem to be leading us to particular conclusions, it at least maintains or pretends to allow us to arrive at our own conclusions by the way it couches these things. So in part two, we've got the the stuff about the nuclear launch codes uh, happening. Um, We're given these specific examples. But as we're transitioning, we go back to the narrator, Peter Coyote, who says, quote, if what they are reporting is accurate, then the pattern is hard to avoid. UFOs have been interfacing on U- or on bases for, for decades. That's not a huge difference, but even the allowance to make the statement, if what they are reporting is accurate, makes me believe this documentary is at least slightly more credible in the way it's presenting its information because Stephen Greer never says if. Stephen (laughs) Greer always says is. Yeah, I don't even have anything to add to that. That's just such a good point. Well, I have one additional thing to say, and that is the fact that maybe this documentary doesn't do this at every possible opportunity, but it does make a habit of doing this repeatedly. For instance, um, a little bit later in the documentary, it's discussing Jacques Vallée, and it says that he's collected purported metallic debris from UFO cases since 1947. Now, purported, I get that that's only one word, but in terms of allowing me to reach my own conclusions it's a word that i really appreciate that's one word that does a lot of heavy lifting and it kind of goes back to this documentary being called the phenomenon it's not saying (laughs) the aliens and i know it wouldn't be called that but I do feel like for the most part, despite my small criticism earlier... Which I think are valid. I, I'm not saying that those yeah, are invalid criticisms. Right, but, but I think I think you just have such a great response to that, showing how the documentary does stay true to its course. And again, that's one word, but it's one word that does a lot of heavy lifting that you don't often see in, in, in the hands of a less responsible documentarian, which kind of goes back to something we were talking about in part one, where it's like, I'm not saying that every documentary that doesn't go that extra step is like doing something really, really bad. But if you care so much about the info, you ought to take those steps because that just shows how seriously you're handling the information and how much you're not trying to portray it as something that it is or isn't. Uh, which is really, I mean, the word document, it's really what a documentary should be. So I think that's such a good point. Um, just such a great catch on that one word. And if you consider this documentary ends with a call to action to contact your representatives. And part three also um, is really ruminating on the fact that Harry Reid had diverted uh, funds for UFO research that that does suggest that the the call to action is not that we're asking the audience to have definitely made up their mind about what the phenomenon is, but it is saying agree with us that it is important that we are using time, energy, and money into discovering what this actually is. Right. And also agree with us that something is happening. Is it alien? Yeah. And and if it's a PSYOP, that something is significant. That's something that I think we obviously deserve to know about. Right. 
Okay, so let's let's move on to probably the the shortest and final part of this documentary, and this is where we move from cases that are more specifically um, dealing with intervention and technology and moving towards some kind of, of contact between um, alien to individual. And I guess in that sense, the documentary almost goes, it increases in the type of encounter yes. as it goes, because mm-hmm. part one is a lot of aerial sightings. Mm-hmm. Which makes but, sense, though. It totally makes right, sense. Because h- how could you... It doesn't make sense to begin with experiencers. Right. Mm -hmm. And then part two, while part two isn't the textbook close encounter of the second kind, we are ramping it up. And then part three has more to do with experiencers. Part two ends with uh, discussing how Harry Reid, Ted Stevens, and Inouye developed this sort of covert program in 2007 that lasted until the tail end of the Trump administration to investigate UFOs. When the information became more public, when Leslie Kahn wrote that that article for the New York Times discussing the gimbal videos. So what I really appreciate about this section is that it sort of contextualizes where a lot of modern ufology discourse is still taking place. I feel like if you go on the internet any day of the week, you can find someone discussing the Tic Tac videos. You can find people talking about Lou Elizondo. You can find people still talking about Harry Reid, um, who was just a huge contributor to all of this stuff. And in some sense, maybe it wouldn't even have gotten to that point without him. Um, so I do appreciate this part of the documentary as kind of like, hey, here has been these stories from the last 50 years. And here's sort of one of the big major declassifications in UFOlogy. So I do, I do really appreciate that. Um, but I don't know if I have much to add as far as piecing through all of the information, what it, it maybe is and what it maybe isn't. Uh, but I do just think it, it does a great job of showing where UFOlogy is at right now and kind of where it's been for the past four or so years. Well, I have three points of armchair philosophizing on this particular point of the documentary, which is, these are not things that I have answers to. If anyone has an explanation for this, please leave it in the comments because I don't know where to follow up on this information. But one, why are we okay with Harry Reid diverting covert funds to a UFO program when we're not okay with funds being diverted to black ops programs? To me, it seems a little weird that we're glorifying one politician who isn't making, it wasn't Harry Reid that made that public, that information public. It was Christopher Mellon being handed these tapes in his cars mm. and then handing them off to to Leslie Kahn. True. Um, two, I find it really interesting when Mellon is commenting on uh, Leslie Kahn's article, he's really disappointed because uh, he wanted the, the takeaway from that article to end with, aliens are real, it's here, and it's happening now, which is what he says. I find that a little strange because Leslie Kahn says the most compelling piece of information she got from the meeting uh, that she had with Elizondo is uh, the, the gimbal footage, which we all have easily accessible on the internet to us. So that says, yes, she was shown other things, but the main thing she saw is the thing that her writing centered around. She was also told that she wasn't um, allowed to keep any of that other stuff. To me, that strongly echoes 
everything that happened to Linda Mooton Howe. She was taken not, you know, it looked like from the meeting between Khan and Elizondo that they're in a much more casual environment. Linda Mooton Howe was like on an actual Air Force base, like alone in a room. It was, it was much sort of weirder but was the treatment of how as a journalist that much different than the treatment of Khan as a journalist it doesn't really seem so and I find it weird that Mellon is disappointed that she wasn't stronger with her assertions about what she saw when journalistic integrity would say that she had to stop there because there wasn't, according to her, anything more compelling than the video itself. Mm -hmm. What do you think the movie's angle is in including that quote from Mellon? Do you think it's saying she should have come to a more solid conclusion about aliens or do you think the movie's doing its due, due diligence and just showing what melon said like do you think the inclusion of that line is supposed to fire us up a little bit or do you think it's sort of just showing what he said i ultimately think that my thoughts on this don't particularly matter but i do think that it's interesting that we begin the movie not with a narrator narrator's voice we begin the movie with melon's voice That's talking about him receiving those tapes i said before that this documentary seems to be the 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 military documentary about i'm not saying it's produced by the military that's yeah. not what i'm saying but the focus of this documentary is the military angle it's weird that's all i have to say about it it, mm -hmm. it seems a little weird and yes i think the takeaway is supposed to be that it should have been stronger i i i'm that's sort of where i'm leaning as well um i think it's a great point you sort of bringing back in that melon does open the the documentary and the person we see first is a person even if we don't notice it our brain does that we're kind of remembering as a face of something so to hear him say he's disappointed in the presentation of the information even if you don't think you noticed it your brain did a little bit because he's the first guy that we heard from so mm -hmm. i think that's a great point you bringing back around that he does open mm -hmm. the documentary mm -hmm. Okay, so let's close this discussion out talking about the final passage of uh, the documentary, which are those ex experiencer portions. This is a great part of the documentary. Um, I could see this being some people's least favorite part, depending on how much you enjoyed the more military-focused stuff. But I personally love this part of the documentary. Uh, before we get into the Zimbabwe children, I think... My favorite story from this part is, is it Papua New Guinea? Yes. Uh, <laughs> and it's a, a preacher. An Australian preacher or Australian, Australian missionary. And what is the full context there? What is he doing out in the forest? He's missionizing people, natives of Papua New Guinea, 38 of them, it says, uh, who saw uh, a UFO park, but like in the sky above them and uh, some figures wearing what looked to be black diving suits. Uh, and this is my favorite part. They, the, the missionaries waved. And the figures in black suits waved back. They waved back. And the first time I saw this documentary, that that just sent me to the moon. Because, you know, my interest in ufology really comes from two competing places. There's the part of me that, that wants to know, that wants answers, that wants to make sure that if I'm listening to information, I'm at least categorizing it in terms of what is more credible and what is less credible. But... 
the the other impulse is more of this like pulp aspect the the kind of campfire stories the mythology the the hope that there could be something greater th than ourselves so if i'm not so much questioning whether or not i believe this individual testimonial and having grown up fundamentalist i have met a number of missionaries and all of them were pretty weird people just saying someone being a missionary does not make them more credible in my eyes but he's a missionary who saw aliens he's a missionary who saw aliens and they waved at him and i would <laughs> love to believe the aliens are waving at us and you know and i guess from a certain angle it's like you would maybe think a missionary would be someone who wouldn't want to say that they saw an alien right be right because mm -hmm. you know and i'm not saying this is the case where all religious people but some people and the tides are turning on that which i also have some opinions about but oh. we'll save that for a later date <laughs> but i would say some some people are a bit offended by the idea of oh, yeah, I, or alien life and I, I was told repeatedly as a child that aliens were demons and they were sent to trick us and this is a missionary saying hey not only did i see aliens they're waving but they waved at me so i do love that story but the main the main piece of the pie uh, with with this part is the Zimbabwe children, the aerial school sighting. For me, since I don't have my mind made up on how legitimate I think the military information on the phenomenon is, I think there's plenty of military disinformation floating around out there, not specifically about the alien stuff, but about many things and many interactions that it has with foreign governments and the way that it interacts with its own domestic population. So, you know, I don't want to sound like a conspiracy theorist, but I think it's fair for all of us to be a little bit jaded with the information that we receive from politicians, military officials, um, and, you know, the government at large. Military kind of gets put in its own little stack of how credible, which is sort of like TBD. Then you have... Another category of information, which is individual experiencers. So like one person who says that they are abducted or are having their CE5 experience. Well, those I always have to put into context of like, that's just one person. So when I think about myself for the information that I find most compelling, that makes me most pushing upon the edges of my belief, it is mass sighting. So something like um, what happened in Phoenix and what happened in Zimbabwe. These are the things that give me more of a pull to believe. And and maybe it's notable that the movie ends with this sighting, that it's ending with with, with a group sighting to really leave you with a strong sense of like, wow. All, Twist the knife. Uh, yeah, all these children saw this. Um, I guess as brief contextualization, a group of, I think it was 60 school children uh, all claim to have seen a UFO, sometimes one to three UFOs, mm -hmm. uh, land near their school. Mm -hmm. um, and once again, this story that the phenomenon is presenting, it doesn't go straight to the school children. First, it says that there were three days of sightings, and it cuts to an actual news report at a... Um, news station with with a reporter talking about eyewitness reports then it goes to the children so it's it's not just hinging on this one event it's at least giving us a little bit of outside contextualization and even in that sense not only does it have old footage of the children speaking when they're kids yes but some of the kids come back as yes. adults to speak about their experiences once again mm -hmm. and actually this is something i wanted to talk about i think i've often 
especially when we record these episodes, I've taken a pretty skeptical angle to things. And um, what this Zimbabwe story always reminds me of, though, is like for as skeptical as I can be, people who are experiencers, like they do live with that for the rest of their lives. And like, I can totally understand how skepticism would become exhausting to these people. So, you know, when I'm skeptical sort of again and again and again, I'm not trying to belittle or to take away from experiencers. um, Cause I can totally see how not only seeing something by yourself, but in a group of people and then to have to grow up with that exhaustion of people telling you you're crazy, people telling you you didn't see anything that that would be very damaging and perhaps even traumatic. Yes. So, um, yeah, I just I just wanted to add that because this is to me the the highlight of the documentary. I guess is this ending moment, which is why I think we're wanting to have productive conversations within ufology as uh, people that are undecided who haven't had their own individual experiences. I think it's incredibly important not to be bullying, not to not to just automatically discount those stories because we don't live in those people's bodies. We can't know. Similarly, I think it is up to the experiencer population to, so long as we are not being mean and cruel, having an understanding that what is being asked of us in our belief systems is so great that, of course, it can't just hinge on personal testimonials. And and something that I really believe, and if anyone disagrees, they can always tell me, but I just believe that within ufology, skepticism doesn't have to be a bad word. And and I ultimately, at least hope, and this could be a foolish hope, but I ultimately hope that maybe there's a way that experiencing and skepticism can find a middle ground where they can both improve each other. Like maybe there's something skeptics don't even really ever consider that can be borrowed from the experiencer angle. And maybe there's something even freeing from a skeptical angle that an experiencer could could sort of learn from. Yeah, it's something that researching and spending so much time just like stewing in the Greer marinade didn't help is that I find the best periods in my life are when I'm getting more magical, when I'm Mm -hmm. like more allowing myself to be open. But that also means openness also leaves you more vulnerable to to attack so i i would love to find a place within myself where i can nurture all of the positivity that being open and receptive to ideas gives me without allowing myself to tumble down the rabbit hole of sort of festering conspiracy theories Mm -hmm. however just to sort of offer full coverage on this part of the movie i do think it's worth pointing out a couple things we we mentioned how the movie has been escalating this message since the very beginning so we start off with look at the phenomenon part two is then look at how the phenomenon interacts with our planet and our nukes and our weapons part three specifically the zimbabwe children part sort of ends up being the ribbon that ties all these things together because the children don't just see an alien they see an alien And through telepathy, perhaps, some of the children say that they received a message from the alien essentially saying, we're treating the planet Earth wrong, we're destroying it, we've gone in the wrong direction with technology, etc., etc., etc. I don't really want to get into right now what I think of all that. Um, We're actually going to have someone on our show very soon. Yes. And maybe 
dissect this particular sighting a bit with some historical context. And, and that person is Flarius Kevin, also known as uh, Greer's Flair, Stephen Greer's Flair. Uh, and I wanted to have him to talk about on to talk about the Zimbabwe children because one of the first tweets of his that I noticed was him being skeptical about the drawings uh, that the children made um, based on what they had seen. And I don't exactly know what his perspective is on that, but I do know that he has studied behavioralism. One of the things about the story that makes me feel a little weird is that John Mack was sent to talk to the children after, and he was that, that Harvard professor uh, that spent a lot of time investigating experiencers. I don't have my mind made up on, on John Mack, but I think it's interesting to have someone that has a history of hypnotizing people directly sent in to speak with those children. Also an environmentalist. Also an environmentalist. I didn't yeah. know that about him. I just recently okay. learned that. Oh, okay. So... I'll be interested to talk to Kevin about why he thinks the story is suspicious. We have not fully vetted it, vetted um, this story, but if there is substantial evidence to invalidate the Zimbabwe children, then that's going to change things up for me quite a bit in terms of my belief system. Because as I, you know, said at the beginning of this conversation, I don't fully feel like I can trust the military information. It's hard for me to, you know, trust those individual testimonials. The thing that has the, the greatest impact are these sort of mass sightings. Mm -hmm. If you can bring some information that invalidates this mass sighting. And it, and it unfortunately wouldn't be, invalidation just for any old story in this documentary james fox has positioned this story as as the sort of aha moment as the sending off point of like you've heard all of this look at these children telling you that an alien told them that we're destroying the planet 60 of the kids saw it even the teacher says that that she believes what what the children saw that day so it would be unfortunate for this story to be potentially invalidated in a number of ways because of where James Fox has positioned it right. in this documentary. Mentioning this does tell me that this documentary, even though far more, I mean, constructed in a far better way than the Greer documentaries, it, it still is a function of the type of medium that it is, which means there is no way that we can get away from the fact that it is going to play upon our, our pathos and that the line between emotional ploys and actual content is, is more overt. So specifically, the fact that it's just children is going to, mm -hmm. to play upon our, motion, our emotions. The, the final ending uh, scene of the documentary has like this lilting horned instrument music going on while it's flashing like the, the earnest faces of children over and over. And, you know, I don't think that's inherently a problem, but it is something to, to pay attention to. The thing I want to respond to there is you said it's kind of of a function of this type of medium which is a a documentary right and the fact of the matter is nine times out of ten if not 99 times out of 100 if you watch a, a documentary on netflix hulu amazon prime something like that it's going to be a documentary that's also a piece of entertainment so someone watching this might be thinking 
well, what's the alternative? What are they supposed to do? I just want to give an example of a video like this. I'm not going to say this is going to be interesting to everyone, but what I mean when I say just a documentary meant to document, uh, this will be something I don't remember the title off the top of my head. I will include the link in the video description. It's a documentary about a feud between two comedians, Sam Hyde and Tim Heidecker. Right, right, right. Th this is really interesting. I remember when you added it to the TSK playlist. At first, I didn't even watch it because I didn't realize it was a documentary because the format is so different than the type of documentaries I'm used to, which, you know, like um, Greer's Unacknowledged and The Phenomenon, our, our information is couched with these sort of recognizable voices of famous actors. It's Giancarlo Esposito and <laughs> right. Unacknowledged. It's Peter Coyote here, which is just to say that there are all of these things that are beyond just the presentation. Like, it's, it's beyond just like, mm. here, look, I'm pointing to a piece of information. And I'm not faulting James Fox or any documentarian for this. If you want to get funding for these things, if you want people to watch them, unfortunately, this is just the form that the medium is in right now. However, what I love about the Tim Heidecker, Sam Hyde feud video, there is no narration. It just starts. And what it what this what this video does is it compiles months worth of audio showing how this feud unraveled. And it shows it to the best of its ability through information we actually have. There is no conjecture. There is no positing. It's, this is a documentary. Right. It, it would be like if you read an academic paper, but there were no transitions, only quotes. And it's you yourself as the reader that has to piece how the, the quotes interact between each other. And let me be very clear. Just again, I'm not saying all documentaries need to do this. But it's, it's a, I'm going to say symptom, honestly. It's a symptom of the form I think people should remember. Uh, because let's kind of think about it this way. Like, why really is the Zimbabwe children last? We mentioned a school, a group of school children earlier in the documentary. Right. Why not have it there? Well, because of the nature of this medium, that's why it's positioned there, to get you to feel a certain way. That's not to take away from the credibility. That's not to take away from the effect of the film. I'm just pointing it out because it's not really just a documentary. It's also a narrative. It's also something you're emotionally invested in because of the way it's done. And it, it's going back to um, that Marshall McLuhan quote that I love, which is essentially that we, we need to understand the media's effect on us that that is essential to our our digestion of information yes, because in that sense with the other McLuhan the famous the big one with the medium being the message something you need to understand about the modern medium of documentaries is that it is an emotional story and so you can't fully understand its effect on you if you don't understand that part as well. Right. So my closing thought on the phenomenon as a documentary is is not that I can take everything at face value because I think there is enough in terms of what you just said about how it interacts with our emotions to take into consideration the fact that it is, it is a documentary and that in and of itself is going to affect how we process the information and how the information is presented. But... Something that I do like about the documentary is that I can rely much more on how the information is presented to me in the way that it is contextualized and the way that it is couched. And I think I end up walking away from this movie thinking it's it's a great, solid, meat and potatoes, UF, UFOlogy documentary. 
if you're interested in this topic and you want to get a broad view of, again, I would say like the modern sentiments of it, this is a great place to start. I do think it's very entertaining, sometimes perhaps to its own uh, undoing. But it has that broad appeal. I mean, that that's why it has this far reach. It's super easy to watch. It's super fun to watch. It's both, you know, you feel like you're getting information and you feel like you're having like a pulp snack campfire story ufology sort of experience. Which is also nice. I think my last thought would be because of our research now in, in this topic, I often walk away from UFO documentaries, feeling a little strange, feeling a little weary, uh, a little worried that what I just saw, like how much am I going to have to vet? How much am I going to have to look into this? Should I even tell someone I watched this? Like, how do I know what any of this is? Right, like I felt a little, you know, weird. The fact that I watch it, you watch it, your roommate watches it. Now your roommate's mom is watching (laughs) it. Like even the fact that we're making this this podcast, like I don't want to be more disinformation. But ultimately the phenomenon really does not make me feel that way. Even though I can't vouch for every single story told here, I do ultimately think uh, it's it's a fun documentary. It's it's well-made. Uh, and I would recommend that anyone watch it if you're interested in this topic, whether you're a veteran or a newcomer. So thank you all so much for subscribing. Be sure to catch us on Calling All Beings. We'll be on live on April 20th. A few weeks after that, we plan on having Flarious Kevin uh, on to talk about what some of the problems might be with the Zimbabwe children's story. Um, and maybe we'll walk away from that having a different perspective on how the phenomenon closes things out. And even further down the pipeline, we're working on some longer scripted content. No spoilers for now. You'll have to wait and see. The best way to do that would be to hit the subscribe button, drop a like on this video, leave us a comment, let us know what you think, and we will see you next time. Bye, guys.